Hello. Hey, man. Hey, what's going on? Not much. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Where are you living these days? I'm actually temporarily in Miami right now. Oh, with the rest of the world. With the rest of the world, indeed. So, figured we'd start by hearing a little bit more about your background before founding Gravity. Yeah. So, but before founding Gravity, um, I had founded Futurism, which was a a digital media company focused on taking these frontier science and technology ideas and communicating them in a way that was more accessible to a mainstream audience. And I, I ended up doing that. So I, I went to undergrad at, at NYU and in, in their business school at Stern. And I, I always knew that I wanted to do something in tech. Um, I read Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near, as, as many others have. And I became fascinated with this idea that the rate of adoption of new technology is increasing exponentially and the world around us is going to change at an incredibly fast pace. And I I wanted to be involved with that. Um, And so after graduating, I kind of jumped right into the startup world. I was in an incubator program at Princeton. I did a program called Startup Chile when I was very young and we were trying to build this kind of virtual events platform. And as a, as a young group of you know, four 21-year-olds, we quickly realized that scaling video infrastructure was a lot harder than we, we had anticipated. Um, and for me, I always, wanted to, I always wanted to break into this frontier science and tech world. And I saw what a lot of the, the funds were doing, like Lux, and I saw what Singularity University was doing. And I looked for an opportunity to become a central node in that ecosystem. And I identified media as that in the opportunity to build a captive, engaged audience around these science and tech and kind of wellness ideas that not many people were talking about and and communicate to them in a way that was more accessible. So kind of like popular science or MIT's technology review, but more mainstream. Um, And we managed I managed to break into that. I actually launched the first piece of content on Reddit. Uh, on a subreddit called Futurology, and I would create this infographic called This Week in Science, which would summarize the biggest scientific breakthroughs every week. Um, And that piece of content that I'd post every Sunday started going to the homepage of Reddit every single week. And so we built up this, this cult following and community of people that wanted to understand what was on the horizon. And we parlayed that into, you know, our, our own media platform, Futurism, and we were early adopters of a lot of these kind of new formats of content like caption-based video content on Facebook. And over the course of two years, we managed to build up a, quite a large audience, you know, millions of people coming to our website and millions of people wanting to consume more. I think at one point we were one of the fastest growing media properties on Facebook. Um, and then we asked ourselves, okay, you know, where do we want to go from here? And the conclusion was that we wanted to build an ecosystem around that media company. We quickly identified that digital media and this community um, was not the business in and of itself, but it was rather a tool to identify other businesses that we wanted to launch. And so Gravity was kind of the first implementation of that idea. I think you were very ahead of the curve in the sense that many brands these days get started by effectively leveraging an existing media property. Can you talk a little bit about not only the decision to start building this ecosystem, but how you, know, how you set up your team, 
Did you have to split it into two? Did everybody work on both companies? Uh, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more tactically how you know you went about starting this new business. Yeah, so um, I believe it was early 2017, and digital media was kind of booming at the time. And you know, we looked at uh, we we were a very lean team, so you know, we were probably five to eight people at that time. And we asked ourselves, okay, if we scale this digital media business, you know, we're going to launch a, a full blown agency. The margins there aren't that great. Uh, how else can we engage with our community and you know our our audience that we've built up here? And we saw what Ben Kaufman was doing at, actually at BuzzFeed at the time with BuzzFeed Product Labs, where they were leveraging BuzzFeed's audience and distribution to to launch new products. Right? They they launched a handful of novel products. They launched a candle business. They launched a few other things, and that model felt very compelling to us. Um, direct consumer products were were really just starting to take off at the time. And so we saw an opportunity to to do something similar. And so we what started out as really just an experiment and an idea, you know, we started leveraging this this kind of small community of about fifty thousand people that we had on a Facebook community page that were super engaged with our content. And we started polling and surveying them around different products that had some futurism orientation. Maybe perhaps they were science or tech oriented. Um, or you know, wellness oriented, which was another topic that our audience really loved to read about. And we you know, took all of that data, we concepted some different product concepts that we as a small team with a not too much product experience could, could develop. And we focused on products that we could bring to market that were fairly high margin and fairly low friction to launch. Um, and then you know, we hired a, a fantastic product consultant that joined our team. And we started just following the, the lean startup model. And, you know, we started building landing pages. We started pushing some of our traffic over to those landing pages. And we looked at what the click-through rate was. We looked at how uh, our audience was engaging on these landing pages, what they were clicking on. And we ran that feedback loop with our audience, call it 20 times, with different products and different ideas. Um, and when we concepted this weighted blanket uh, product, the, the initial feedback we saw was, was so compelling. I mean, the click-through rate was so high. The, the original website we built was so janky. And people were truly trying to buy this product that we hadn't launched yet. Um, and that, that was astounding to us. I mean, we, we couldn't believe that, that people wanted to buy this product on such a, a basic website. And so we dug deeper. Right. And we, we did some market analysis. We looked at the other competing products out there. We refined our feedback loop further. Um, and after we received enough positive signal from the market, we decided that this experiment was worth you know, pursuing further. And so we decided to go the Kickstarter route because you know, Kickstarter would allow us to further validate this concept while minimizing downside risk. And what I mean by that is, you know, we could concept this product we could create a prototype um, and then we could launch it on kickstarter and we knew through our media network that we had the distribution necessary so we knew that when we launched this product it would be seen our launch video would be seen by you know millions of people and then the question became well how confident are we that they'll buy and we had run the test necessary to give us um you know a, a relative degree of confidence there and so we decided to launch on Kickstarter. We developed a, a very robust distribution strategy for 
our Kickstarter campaign. Um, and then, you know, within the first few days, it, it had really gone viral. I think you ended up with one of the most successful Kickstarter campaigns of all time, uh, especially at, at that point in time. What I see these days, a lot of people are using Republic. A lot of people are maybe even not going the crowdfunding route anymore. I'm curious if you think crowdfunding has sort of passed its prime or if you still think it's a great mechanism for brands to get launched. Yeah, so I think crowdfunding as a mechanism platforms like Kickstarter and Indiegogo are fantastic in the sense that they provide non-dilutive funding to the creators to get these ideas off the ground. And generally there you know there's there's nothing better for a founder or a creator than this pre-order concept that was pioneered by Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And they've done a fantastic job. And so I think when the opportunity exists to create some kind of pre-order campaign, whether on a crowdfunding platform or otherwise, it's always worth pursuing. Um, I'd say that one thing that I feel is often overlooked in the development of these crowdfunding campaigns is the distribution mechanisms that the creator has in place. And so, um, you know, for us at, at Futurism and at Gravity, we had an entire media network, right? We had all of our owned and operated properties. We had partner properties that had committed to sharing our Kickstarter. And so we knew uh, with, you know, near 100% confidence that when we launched this Kickstarter, it was going to be seen by 5 million plus people. And then it was really a question of conversion. And I think what most people overlook is that guaranteed distribution component to their Kickstarter campaigns uh, and something that oftentimes needs a lot more kind of honing and, and, and focus. And so as it relates to the current state of, of crowdfunding, I'd say the, the marketplace that we launched in 2017 into was very different in the sense that you know, with Facebook videos and, and with the distribution platforms that were in place across social, you know, we could guarantee that, that 5 million people would see our, our launch. Nowadays, th there's really no such mechanism that, that I can think of that exists unless you pay for that traffic. And then, you know, it's, it's a different calculation. And so I think that's partially why, you know, we've seen a bit of a decrease in crowdfunding over the last few years, because most of these creators can't find that guaranteed distribution mechanism. And when they launch, the amount of eyeballs on their product is not the same as what it once was. So as a result of that, do you think successful brands in the future need to have a media arm? Do you think it's a prerequisite? Uh, yeah. So I'd say having uh, your own owned and operated media distribution is a fantastic asset and a fantastic tool to do so many things. I don't necessarily think you have to own it yourself. Uh, so if you go out there and you look at, you know, all of the different media companies or uh, influencer pages that exist, you can you can partner to find that distribution. Um, you know, you can certainly create different collaboration opportunities with them. But I do think that identifying and having a fully fleshed out distribution plan is very important to launching a crowdfunding campaign. And the the other thing that I'd I'd mentioned too. And I think something that we see a lot, I mean, with, with Gravity, we had a, a phenomenal team of people around us. We had some of the best creatives, you know, I've ever worked with. We had a fantastic leader in, you know, what became the Gravity CEO, Mike Grillo. 
Um, but I, I think a lot of people often overlook the feedback loop necessary in developing that, that product and the product market fit. And so I think as you continue to invest time and resources into a product, you build up these entrenched beliefs as to what your customer wants without actually testing that. And so this, this whole lean startup MVP methodology is something that you know, I believe strongly in, our, our team believes strongly in, and something that feels almost so basic that it's often overlooked and something that I'd, you know, I'd encourage people to, to spend more time running those tests before they launch and not to believe that they have kind of this intuitive sense of what people want. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people read the Steve Jobs biography and thought that that was the norm and not Absolutely. the exception. Uh, when, in, when in reality, your method is, is a far, far better, more efficient method for getting to building a product people want. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it, you know, I think r- running that feedback loop is, is very important. And, um, you know, you'll, you'll derive so many different insights. I mean, with, with Gravity, we, we ran that feedback loop for the product that we wanted to launch. And then we ran the feedback loop again with the, the brand that we wanted us to associate with the product that we were trying to launch. And then we ran the feedback loop again with the price point. And so these are all things that you can test. And you can't rely absolutely on the data that is generated from the tests, but they should certainly, at least in my opinion, inform the decisions that you make. Yep, completely agree. So you launch Gravity with a single product, the weighted blanket. On a previous interview for this podcast, Lorianne Goldman, the former CEO of Spanx, talked a little bit about the power of a hero product and how some companies don't ride them long enough. I'm curious to hear more about uh, Gravity in, the, in respect to the weighted blanket. How long did you ride that single product for? When did you decide to launch a second product? And how did you come to the decision to do that? Yeah, so so for us, when we launched our Kickstarter, so we went from you know, kind of coming up with this idea that we wanted to launch a product to being live on Kickstarter in probably 12 weeks. Um, And in that time, we had a single prototype of the gravity blanket. And so when we launched and the the campaign went viral, you know, we were flying a single blanket around the U.S. to, you know, all of these different talk shows and, um, you know, all of the media appearances that we need. And and we had literally one, one version of that product. And so after we closed our, our crowdfunding campaign, I mean, the, the demand, the, the continued to demand for that product was unbelievably high. And so our next challenge, obviously, was identifying, building out, and scaling the supply chain. Um, and again, you know, we, we had a fantastic team of, of folks on the ground that, that helped lead that for us. Um, and it took us a few months to get everything in order. And, and when we did, you know, we, we realized that we had this really significant first mover advantage within this weighted blanket category, a category that was previously quite nascent and something that really resonated with the audience. And so, you know, we decided to, to double and triple down on that, that hero product that we had. You know, we, we launched a V2 of the product quite quickly. We listened to customer feedback and, and we, you know, we rode that product for probably close to a, a full year before we really started thinking about what a second product looked like. And we did that simply because it, it made sense from a business perspective for us, right? We were a very lean team. I mean, Gravity was operating within Futurism for the first, call it one to two years of its life. And 
the team dedicated to gravity was you know only a few full-time people and so their best their time was best spent scaling the product that we were seeing fantastic returns on and you know we knew at the time that we wanted to run and operate and scale gravity as a, a very very lean business you know we didn't want to take on additional outside capital we wanted to control the narrative we wanted to control the growth and, and we wanted to really ride the, the organic interest in our product. And so we, we did that for, for quite some time. Um, and we decided to launch a, a second product, which was our, our weighted sleep mask, after running you know, very similar tests to what we did with Gravity. We had this engaged audience. We saw that they wanted this product. And the second product was you know, very much a, a complementary product. It was a small product. It was a low price point product and it was meant to be an add-on. And so we, we didn't really explore launching another larger, uh, higher price point product for, for many years after Gravity. And, you know, I, I certainly think that was the right decision and it allowed us to cement our positioning in this space while scaling that business with, you know, only a handful of folks and relying on no additional outside capital. And all throughout this time period, are you still relying on futurism for free distribution of the product or at this point have you gone to other traditional channels like you know spending on paid acquisition podcast advertising yeah so so what was really interesting and, and what we found about this media and consumer product combination is that futurism in our our distribution network was immensely valuable in starting the wave and kind of getting that you know that initial push um you know when Consumers see that this product launched on Kickstarter and, you know, our launch video has 5 million views on Facebook. It helps generate interest and it helps them want to learn more. Um, and futurism in our media network was immensely valuable at that, that first stage of, of growth and, and the Kickstarter launch. After Kickstarter, you know, we very, very quickly kind of decoupled the reliance on futurism's distribution channels and network. And, you know, it was it was certainly helpful and valuable. Um, but, you know, we quickly moved to um, a more traditional paid acquisition model. We relied on a lot of influencers that, you know, really wanted to to talk about our product, to to try our product. Um, and so futurism and, and the media network that we built up was immensely valuable in the beginning, but very quickly it it tapered off. And And as for the team that we had running Gravity, I mean, the, the way we were structured was, you know, we had kind of a, a parent company and we had our, our digital media team that was running and operating. And then we had our gravity team, which was led by, you know, our a fantastic leader in Mike Grillo. Um, and they, they generally operated independently. I mean, it, it did allow us to keep our costs down by having some shared resources, whether that was on the, the engineering side or the design side or the creative side. Um, but generally, the the two businesses were run quite separately early on, and they would kind of you know develop some synergies, but the the synergies uh, really kind of uh, decreased over time. So as you scaled, I presume you started D to C with your own you know owned website, and then over time you start to look for other distribution channels, uh, not necessarily only online but offline. So I did a quick search earlier and I saw that Gravity is currently sold at Target, Bloomingdale's, um, I think on Amazon, 
among others. One question I'm constantly asked by founders when you start going omnichannel. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, on that. Question. Yeah. So, so for us and, and our, our expansion into retail was, was led by the, the CEO who kind of had the vision to realize that, uh, you know, we wanted to decentralize our, our customer acquisition channels as, as quickly as possible. And so that idea, I think we saw, you know, while we were operating the, the media business, we had a lot of traffic coming from places like Facebook. You know, at one point we were, um, we saw most of our traffic come from Reddit and we quickly decentralized the, those acquisition channels from the media business. And it just helps hedge risk. It helps hedge downside in case there's, there's a change in that, that acquisition channel. And so for the consumer product business in 2017, the, the direct consumer landscape was, you know, really starting to take off and competition for, ads on, on Facebook and Instagram was, was really starting to heat up. And so it wasn't surprising to see the, the customer acquisition cost uh, increase significantly month over month, right? And so we saw that as a sign that we wanted to move to different platforms. We wanted to acquire customers through different channels. And retail was obviously the kind of the, the big elephant in the room. Um, and we, we quickly identified, you know, through conversations with fantastic advisors and, and other entrepreneurs that the lead time to get into a lot of these large retailers can be incredibly long, right? I mean, if you're talking about Target, um, the time from initial conversation to actually being placed in store is probably around a year and a half to two years. And so we, we started those conversations early. We, we seeded them early, knowing that they would take a long time to materialize. Um, and I think that that's a great decision something that I'd, I'd certainly recommend other direct consumer businesses look at. Um, and, you know, I think that the one thing to think about there is your, your leverage and your ability to get into a lot of these top retailers increases when you have strong brand awareness with the consumer. And so starting direct consumer, building that brand awareness is really going to help with those conversations. It's going to help get you better terms with a lot of these retailers. Um, and something that I'd, I'd also encourage folks to to think about as they look to scale these businesses. I'd actually love to dive a little bit deeper on that last point. So you launch D2C, you have a bunch of press, you have a bunch of good reviews. Do you literally just pack that package that up into a one pager of like, here's our reviews, here's our revenue metrics, here's all the press we have, uh, and present that to a buyer and make the case for why they should take your product? Or do you have to work with the middleman you know, using a distributor, like how does that? Yeah. So, work? so we did all of the above. Um, you know, really what we did was we, we were fortunate in that prior to the launch of gravity, no one really knew what a weighted blanket was. And so as the, the kind of vertical, the, the kind of product category of weighted blankets evolved, this term gravity blanket stuck, right? It became synonymous with weighted blanket. Everyone called uh, the entire weighted blanket category or the weighted blanket that they had bought from another brand, a gravity blanket. And so we had fantastic brand awareness. Um, and we were able to, you know, as you said, package that up. And then we, you know, we identified key retailers that we wanted to start with. Uh, our, our product is positioned as a, a premium product. You know, we use fantastic materials. We're certainly at a higher price point than a lot of the other products in the space. And so we went to the premium retailers first. And, you know, we went to them through every channel that we could find. You know, we used intermediaries, we used partners, 
Uh, we went direct where we could, and we really just kind of blitzed, you know, all of these retailers um, and began navigating what often became complex sales processes and kind of unique processes for each different retailer uh, with the understanding that it was going to take a while and that, you know, we were going to be able to continue growing and scaling on the direct consumer side until we received the key retail partnerships that we wanted. And then once you landed those accounts, how did you finance your inventory runs? Did you just use debt or, or did you have enough cash already? In, in the yeah, company so, so it was a mix business? of both. Um, so I'd say that running a lean direct consumer startup is, is very different than, you know, running a, a heavily venture backed business. And so we were always extremely conscious of our cash position and, you know, our, our burn rate and, and credit to, to our CEO, Mike, for doing a phenomenal job there. And, and our CFO, Greg, I mean, they, they knew and, and we all agreed very early on that we wanted to scale this business in a lean and efficient way. And so at, when it came to placing these POs for the retailers, you know, we, we did have cash on hand that we'd use to finance some of them. We had a credit line from a fantastic partner that we leaned on. Um, and the general approach was, you know, wherever we can find non-dilutive funding, um, that, that's a great place to start. And, you know, as I think about if I were starting a, a direct consumer business today, right, I'd be very, very conscious of that. I mean, I think when you raise too much venture capital from the, from the beginning, you have this expectation of growth and you're forced to grow regardless of, um, you know, perhaps whether the economics often make sense that, you know, you'll oftentimes see the cost to acquire a customer much higher than the, the LTV. And I think it's worth stepping back and asking yourself, you know, does this make sense? And is that the type of business that I want to grow where, you know, this is either going to be a, a blockbuster home run or, you know, we're quickly going to run out of um, kind of financing sources because the expectation of growth is too high here. And my, my prediction is, you know, what we saw in the digital media space in, you know, call it from 2014 through 2017 was we saw an explosion of, of startups entering. We saw tremendous venture interest in the space. And a lot of these businesses grew and, you know, they scaled and they developed a fantastic audience. But when it came to actually turning that audience into a real viable business, they, they struggled. Um, and when they started to struggle in, call it 2017 and beyond, venture financing began to dry up. And we've since seen this mass consolidation of media companies, often uh, consolidating through pure equity deals. And, you know, I think in the direct consumer space where we're starting to see that as well, where you have all of these single product businesses that raised outside venture money, they've become too bloated, you know, their economics don't make sense. And a lot of venture financing in the space has cooled um, you know, to say the least. And what we're starting to see now is, I think the exact same thing we saw in digital media, we're starting to see consolidation through pure equity deals. And if you can, in this market, launch a direct consumer business, um, you know, if you can launch it recurring, so, you know, there's some kind of um, monthly or quarterly purchase involved in it, and you can get that business to the point where you're showing uh, you know, strong recurring revenue and your acquisition cost is is reasonable and the economics look good, then you can really go out there and you can get, 
you know, uh, a line of credit to, to finance your marketing and your inventory. And you can scale that business without needing the, those venture dollars. Um, and in the long run, I think that's, you know, that, that's the path I'd go if I were starting a direct consumer business today. And who do you think the consolidators will be? So do you think it's going to be the Walmarts of the world? It seems like they were active for a period of time and then have sort of backed off and I think blew up their uh, digital brands team. Or do you think it will be more independents or newly funded private equity firms or Holtco's or a lot of these new structures we're seeing? Yeah, so I, I think it's going to be the Thrasios of the world. Generally, I think you're going to see a lot of private equity roll-ups. Um, you know, w- when you dive into the, the economics of, of scaling a direct consumer business, I think what you see is you see a lot of roles and responsibilities that these small direct consumer businesses have, you know, an entire team for, or they have a, a full employee for, where in reality, they, they don't need a full employee to do that. You know, they need half an employee, or they need a quarter of an employee to do that. And so this shared services model that we're starting to see a lot of these, these roll-up companies deploy, I think is, is going to be a winner in the space. Um, and I think that with that scale comes a, a significant decrease in you know, the, the, the unit economics of the products, the, the overhead of the business, the cost to get into a lot of these retailers, the negotiating power you have with these retailers. And so I... You know, I certainly think that the next few years we're going to see very significant consolidation in the space, particularly among those direct consumer businesses that have taken quite a bit of, of venture capital. I think those deals are going to be primarily equity deals. Um, and the evolution of the direct consumer space is going to follow quite similarly to the, the evolution of the digital media space. In the shared services model, I could see something like customer acquisition being very easy to have, you know, one resource across multiple companies. How do you think about other things like supply chain where maybe the products are very different? On the shared services model, you know, you'll, you'll find synergies and you'll find cost savings when you can share your creative team. You know, you'll find synergies when you can share your paid acquisition team, your finance team. Um, you know, a, a lot of these, these roles I think can be, dual product, you know, they, they can be dual businesses, um, you know, assuming they're both direct consumer businesses. And then on, on the supply chain side, I mean, I generally think that there are consolidation opportunities there. There are centralized supply chain partners that can facilitate the supply chain for very different products. We're starting to see those pop up on the back end. Um, and so, you know, certainly there are products where you can't consolidate the supply chain, but I do think that, you know, across the board on the, the, the ownership side, so as it relates to a lot of these private equity and roll-up companies um, centralizing these direct consumer businesses, we're starting to see that. We're starting to see consolidation on the supply chain side as it relates to coordinating and communicating with, you know, the actual manufacturing partners that you have in place. And so generally, I think there's opportunity for consolidation and shared resources across the board. Well, I guess that's a perfect segue into into maybe the last meaty topic, which is M&A. So you recently exited Gravity to Win Brands Group. I'm curious if, you, you know, just if you can talk a little bit about the process. Were you actively trying to sell the business um, or is it something that just sort of came up? And, you know, how did you decide to go with Win Brands Group? Yeah, can you talk a little absolutely. Bit more about what so um, as we continue to scale the Gravity business, I mean, 
Um, you know, we managed to achieve very significant growth while being very lean, you know, for, for a number of years. And we managed to do that quite well. And we knew that um, to reach the next stage of the evolution of the business, you know, we at that point needed to either decide to, you know, raise real outside capital to, to get us to that, that next stage of growth or, you know, consolidate the business with a fantastic partner that was pursuing the shared services model that we, you know, strongly believed in that had a vision for how to scale these businesses and that we thought would be a fantastic home for the Gravity brand and continue to support the brand ethos and the brand mission that we had developed um, and, and help it reach its, its full potential. And so, you know, we did actively explore the sale of the business. Um, you know, we hired a, um, an investment bank in New York, a, a group at Consensus, uh, which is the investment bank, which, you know, really worked diligently with us to help develop all of the necessary materials and, um, you know, get ready for a potential sale. And as we started down that process, you know, we uh, began conversations with the wind team and, and Kyle and Eric over there in particular, who, you know, had been longtime supporters and, and believers in the brand. And, you know, we, we got along very well with them. I mean, the, the Gravity CEO was excited by what they were building there. Um, it seemed like their, their vision for this kind of um, parent slash hold co direct consumer model really aligned with how we thought the business should grow and how it can play with other brands. They, they knew and they, they supported the idea that, you know, the Gravity brand in and of itself was going to continue to cater to our audience and, and support its mission. Um, and so those, those conversations unfolded over, you know, the course of almost a year. Um, and, you know, we're, we're strong believers and supporters of everything that Wynn is doing. You know, we think they, they've really nailed the model here and they believe and have, you know, successfully executed on this idea that a lot of these direct consumer businesses can be scaled and they can be unit economic profitable um, very, very quickly. And they can be run with a team that is you know, a, a fraction of what a lot of these other direct consumer businesses scale at. Um, and so that, you know, the, the conversations with them unfolded over the course of a year. And, you know, we, we kind of quickly knew that they'd, they'd make a great home for the business. And our, our team was excited. Um, and they had a lot of, you know, strong retail partnerships that we wanted to continue to cement and support in our growth. Um, and so we're, we're very excited and, and happy to be part of the Wynn family. And that was their first yeah. acquisition? Yeah, so, so the, the Wynn team has done a, a handful of acquisitions. I believe they acquired Homesick Candles. Um, they acquired, yep, yeah, it's a fantastic brand. And, oh, yeah, I love that you know, they, They've scaled that business very, very well. And you know, they've kept it true to its ethos. And Kalo, which is the, um, the, the wedding band company that they also acquired a while ago. And I know that they are you know, very actively looking for other businesses that most likely have been bootstrapped or have raised little outside capital that have really good uh, you know, unit economics and that have an extremely strong brand and committed and engaged audience that they can you know, really help fuel and ignite 
and, and leverage their, you know, their shared services model that they've developed. It's a really compelling vision. I'm excited to see uh, some of the other, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm strong believers and supporters of the Win team. Um, and I, I know that the executive team at Gravity and, and Mike is excited to work with them. And, um, you know, the it, it's going to be very exciting to see the evolution of this space. And I think that, you know, the unit economics are, are going to continue to become front and center for a lot of these products. Unique creative distribution strategies and customer acquisition strategies are, you know, going to become front and center as well. And I'm, I'm extremely excited to see the, the evolution of the space. Yeah, me too. It's really, it's really compelling. And then I guess just last question for me, this was the second acquisition process you went through. Um, you'd previously sold futurism to singularity university. Can you just talk about the two acquisition processes and if there are any missteps yeah. or things? So that I, I'd say that, you know, for, for an, an entrepreneur, or for someone that is um, about to engage or, you know, plans to engage in an acquisition process, I think, you know, the key thing to keep in mind is that is inevitably going to consume a tremendous amount of your time. And so balancing the operations of the business with, you know, the, the acquisition process can oftentimes be, um, you know, really, really time consuming. And you have to ask yourself frequently, you know, is this acquisition conversation, you know, really the, the best use of my time? Is there someone else that can help facilitate or take some of the burden off my plate here? Um, you know, whether that's an investment banking partner or whether that's an advisor or an investor or, you know, perhaps your CFO. I think, you know, that's oftentimes worth thinking about. Um, and, you know, for, for us, I mean, for the, the media acquisition you know, I was simultaneously leading that acquisition and leading the, the business, which, you know, I, I felt the, the burden of that firsthand. And so as we engaged in the gravity process, you know, we found a fantastic team at Consensus that we really enjoyed working with. And, you know, we had Mike Grillo, the gravity CEO, really focused on the continued growth of the, the business itself. And, you know, the, the acquisition process was, was really spearheaded by the, the bank and, and myself uh, who had moved into kind of a, a chairman position. And so I think, you know, really thinking deeply about, you know, who is going to run that process, acknowledging that the process is going to take twice as long as you expect and probably five times as much work as, as you expect is important. And then I would also suggest, um, you know, I'd suggest that people when they begin this process and they start talking to a potential acquirer that they front load all of the key criteria that are important to them in the LOI. Um, and what that does is it kind of prevents potential issues where, you know, you get far down the line in your acquisition conversations and something that you consider to be a key uh, negotiating point you know, gets turned and you're now six months, um, you know, kind of in the process. There's a lot of sunk cost that's happening there. And, you know, the ability to perhaps um, go in another direction is much more challenging than it would be if, you know, you had explicitly discussed a lot of these terms with the acquiring party early on and aligned, and aligned on them. 
Um, and, you know, this is something that, you know, we, we did well with the wind team and the wind team was, you know, very supportive of kind of having a lot of these uh, deep dive conversations early with us, making sure that we had a lot of the key decision points out of the way early so that, you know, we could um, kind of smoothly work through the, the diligence process that, that comes afterwards. It's an amazing perspective. I think M&A for startups is one of the most under-discussed topics. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I think it's going to be very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say, you know, as it relates to thinking about an acquisition, uh, I agree with you. I think it's often overlooked and I think it's a process that can be, that can begin far before you actually start engaging in those conversations. And so if the intent is to, you know, perhaps sell your business within the next few years, then there's really no reason why you shouldn't have, you know, a, a potential list of acquirers that you are starting conversations with years before, you know, you, you may look to sell the business, feeling them out, understanding more about the types of businesses they're looking to acquire, where and who are the decision points in that organization. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that can really help inform perhaps some of the business strategies that you take as you continue to think through how you grow and scale your business. No, it's a, it's a, such a great perspective. I, I'm going to start incorporating that into our own companies and make sure they at least have you know, something top of mind. Um, doesn't need to be too in the weeds, but at least a high level list. Um, Absolutely. Seems like it would be a good idea. Well, thank you uh, very much for sharing all of these insights. Really appreciate it. I'm excited to see uh, what's next for you in your journey. And Absolutely. See you soon Andrew, this, this was a pleasure. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation and, and looking forward to getting together again soon. Talk soon. Great. Bye. We'll talk to you soon and be